Hello, everyone, and welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Radai. I'm your host, Eddie Pangen, and with me in the studio is my friend and colleague, Niklas Sävos. In today's episode, we will speak to an experienced investor who has selected a superb book to discuss with us. And this is a format we find interesting to mix with the pure author interviews that we're usually doing. So, Niklas, who is our guest? So, the person we have invited this time is Todd Wenning, an American investor and writer with a background including Ensemble Capital, Motley Fool and Morningstar. In episode 5, we actually came across some of Todd's work since he's a contributing author to the book Why Modes Matter. The book for this episode is Lessons from the Titans, with the subtitle What Companies in the New Economy Can Learn from the Great Industrial Giants to Drive Sustainable Success. The book is written by Scott Davis, Carter Copeland and Rob Wertheimer. It was first published by McGraw-Hill in 2020. Here comes our conversation with Todd Wenning. Hello, Todd, and welcome to Investing by the Books podcast. Thanks for having me. This is great. We met uh, briefly in Omaha last year, and uh, this time Niklas and I are in the studio of Red Eye here in Stockholm. But uh, where are we reaching you today? Uh, I'm based in Cincinnati, Ohio, which is uh, probably about five hours drive uh, southeast from Chicago. If you know, just trying to get a, a mental picture of the United States map, um, you know, we're we're bordering uh, Kentucky and Indiana, so we're right in the Midwest, right at the beginning of the Midwest, as you head west towards Omaha. And is it in the in the home office, or or where are you? Yes, I'm currently in my home office. And for those not familiar with uh, Todd Wenning, can you tell us how your interest in business and investing started? Sure. Uh, so a friend of mine suggested I apply to a company called Vanguard, which I frankly had never heard of before. <laughs> Vanguard is based in Valley Forge, which is out west uh, from Philadelphia, but not too far. And I was hired to be what they call a registered representative which is pretty much an entry level um, licensed broker, so to say, uh, where I was able to place mutual fund trades for uh, customers and talk about the mutual funds. But I had really no idea what I was doing. I remember uh, when I got the, 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 the study guide for Series 6, I didn't know what a stock was. Um, you know, I think Vanguard hired me because I had a great undergraduate GPA and I had had experience on the phones. And it, so it was really learning on the go. They took a big chance on me. I, hopefully I, I lived up to it for them. Uh, but, you know, as soon as I got the Series 6 book and started studying, I thought this stuff is just absolutely fascinating. And coming from a liberal arts background, all of the different uh factors that that play into investing just sort of lit up in me. So being able to integrate everything from philosophy to art to economics um, and, and incorporate that into your investing approach and how do you think about business, um, that really resonated with me. And so it just went from there. So I was at Vanguard for two years, I started out in the mutual fund space and then moved up to the uh, brokerage department where I was trading stocks. Uh, for the for clients you know, placing orders, things like that, got the Series Seven. Um, just I'll summarize where I've been since then. Uh, you asked me where I got started, and you know I can you can stop me at any point and ask me you know, about uh, different experiences. But um, I went to what's called what was called SunTrust Asset Management, which is now part of Truist Bank um, in D.C., um, Washington D.C. My wife 
girlfriend at the time uh, was down in Virginia. She had just graduated uh, from college and ended up moving down there. It's helping a lot of portfolio managers um, work with high net worth portfolios. And I happened to live about three miles from the Motley Fool headquarters in uh, Alexandria, Virginia. And they had a job opening for a financial editor. And I've always liked to write. And I had a couple of years under my belt as an investor. And I went to the Motley Fool and it was 180 degrees difference in terms of culture uh, from a bank. It went from, you know, button up suit and tie every day to wearing flip-flops and shorts to work. And we had a game room. We had peanut butter and jelly day. It was, you know, the complete opposite of a bank. And it was just an you know, amazing place for a 25-year-old to work. And, you know, they they really gave us the, the keys to the car, so to say, so we could uh, write on the website. And that was just such an accelerant um, to my my learning experience. And there have been some tremendous investors that, that came through the Motley Fool system, you know, most notably Morgan Housel, most famous of us uh, uh, to come out. And so he's he's obviously done a great job with all of his work. Uh, but you know, Motley Fool was a tremendous experience. I worked on the newsletters there, uh, uh, moved to London for a year, worked on uh, Motley Fool Dividend Edge. And I got to the point where I really wanted to become more of an institutional investor and the Motley Fool is great with the retail crowd. Um, institutional, you know, it's a little more challenging to, to move into that space. So I decided to move more institutional and Morningstar was a great way for, for that to happen. So a lot of Motley Fool people had gone to Morningstar at various times. And so there was already that established bridge and Morningstar was ramping up its institutional equity research group. And I worked on I was covering the paper and packaging industry, and I was leading the equity stewardship methodology, which looked at how uh, management teams allocated capital um, and, and how it reinforced or detracted from the economic moat. Um, around 20, in 2014, my, my youngest son was born, and we, or my oldest son was born, my only son was born, my first kid. And so we moved down to Cincinnati, where my, my family is based um, in, in Ohio. Um, I found a, a buy side job working with Johnson Investment Council in Cincinnati and was working on the, uh, their SMIDCAP portfolio as a generalist analyst. Um, I eventually moved to Ensemble Capital in a fully remote setting, uh, working out of Cincinnati for Ensemble, which is based in San Francisco. And here I am now. I'm working on uh, the, the Flyover Stocks newsletter on Substack, where I'm looking for companies with economic moats led by thoughtful leaders of shareholder capital. I'm curious to know what um, influence Pat Dorsey had on you in terms of, uh, of, of your moat framework. Yeah, so I'd never worked directly with Pat. He had gone on to his next roles before I had gotten there. But he uh, certainly influenced, uh, you know, his books and his methodology are the cornerstone of the Morningstar approach, you know, the, the five sources of economic moat, how to think about competitive advantage. And so it was certainly an influence. And I, I very much admire Pat. Um, I don't know him well. Uh, we've, we've met each other a couple of times, but you know, I don't know him well, but I've certainly learned a lot from him. I'm also curious to hear more about your, your interest in history. Yeah, so I've always been interested in history, even as a kid. Um, I just uh, in Cincinnati, you know, it's a very historical city, um, which is not 
well known. It's you know, given the, the comparison between European history and, and American history, American history is very young, but Cincinnati has a lot of history uh, going back. The city was founded in 1788. It was the first boom town in the West well, at the time it was called the West, but um, it was you know, west of the Allegheny Mountains. It was the first major city. Um, it was a major economic hub. There was a, a ton of a ton of money came to Cincinnati. You know, I'm sure we'll talk about this later, perhaps. But you know, Procter and Gamble was founded here, and it was because it was on the, uh, the the canal system that had just been established, and that allowed them to get their products coast to coast and around the world. And so Cincinnati's got a lot of great history, and I remember going to different parts of the town with my dad growing up, and just being fascinated by you know seeing what had come before and. Um, so I just really excelled in that as a student, as a kid. I, I had some great teachers uh, over the years, which always helps and just you know made history come alive. And this certainly at that place, just an amazing, this amazing resource for investors. You know, and I'll say not so much when you get started, because if you if you're going to apply for jobs in the finance world, they see history degree, they see oh this guy's a project, right? It's going to take a long time to teach him all this stuff. But certainly as you get into the investing world and you take on more responsibility and have more of an opportunity to um, see things from a 10,000 foot view, um, the history major really comes in, into play. I mean, it's the disciplines that you learn. It's how to research, how to write, how to communicate, how to piece together disparate pieces of information um, and tie them together into a thesis. You know, those are the disciplines that you learn um, in the history and in, in, in university, especially. And so, there's a lot of great portfolio managers out there who were history majors. Um, I can name a couple off the top of my head. I mean, just they they came from um, just a, a liberal arts background and had a very similar path to me, where you know they they got into to the um, the field and they were able to apply those what I'll call soft skills and qualitative skills over time, and it, it's helped them allocate capital and um, think about you know, this is what's happened in the past and this is what's likely to happen in the future. And you know, obviously, the future is much harder to predict and looking backwards, but you know, certainly you can spot trends and, and themes over time and that, that can help inform your, your investing approach for sure. I think the book we would speak about today is, a, is an example of that. We would speak about Lessons from the Titans. Why have you chosen this book? You know, I read this, this book, Lessons from the Titans, on a flight um, out to California um, earlier uh, this past year. And it just everything seemed to strike a chord with me. You know, it's you could call it confirmation bias, perhaps. But as I was reading, I thought, you know, this this is something that I I should have I wish I had written. You know, it's just the the way they approach things. Um, the the authors did a great job of laying out why certain industrial companies, which were the tech companies of their day in the '60s, had had succeeded through this through the next 50 years, and others had failed. Um, you know, I think they did a great job tying together some some key themes related to having systems in place, um, having a, a great corporate culture, and what that actually means, and and how management teams should should operate. And I think it's a, it's a great lesson for investors, especially long term investors, people who are one to own businesses for ideally decades, to to really come to appreciate what that takes because. Companies are not static assets, and that's something that's that's really resonated with me in the past couple of years. Is you know, there's a school of thought that you you buy stock and you hold it, and you just you know hold it indefinitely, and you never touch it. But the company that you bought 
10 years ago is different from the company that you have now. If you had to start from scratch, the company that you're buying now or you're holding is, is different. So I do think that you have to continuously monitor your companies and figure out, do I still want to own this? And so it's always a tricky balance of trying to figure out, is this a company that I, I still want to own or have I, are there con concerning signs that things are starting to deteriorate? And so I think this book does help you think through some of those, um, those, those, those trends within the business cycle and in a company's life cycle. And the authors of the book were at the time of publication, all uh, principals at Melius Research. Can you tell us a bit about them? Um, I, I don't know them very well, but I know that they covered the industrial sector for quite some time. So they had experience speaking with managers in the space over a, you know 10 plus years. And you do start to pick up different trends uh, within the the business cycle and the industrial and in, in, in the, in the company life cycle. And they flagged up some of the uh, really important factors that they that they had learned over time in following these companies. And so I thought they did a great job incorporating all these things together. And for those who have not read the book, it consists of 10 different companies that are included, uh, which usually comprises of one chapter of, of each company. Only General Electric is big enough to have two chapters dedicated to them. Um, but um, it's, it's a success stories, there are crisis stories, and there's everything in between. And uh, one of the companies mentioned is, is Honeywell. And for those not familiar with them, maybe you can introduce our listeners to, to the company. Yeah, so Honeywell started out, I believe, as a thermostat company, and it grew into a uh, industrial conglomerate over time. And uh, the the story that I really liked from Honeywell was the profile of Dave Cote, who was the CEO, I believe, starting right after the dot com bus around that time. Um, and just his stewardship mentality is something that uh, I wish I had understood at the time this this would this would have been early in my investing career starting in 2003 but um you know it was that example provided a great blueprint for the type of ceo that you should want to back because one of his quotes from the book uh, which they which they shared uh is i want to make money in the stock 10 years after i retire which i think is an amazing perspective and you know if, if you heard that quote, you might think, oh, he said that towards the end of his career. No, he said that in the beginning of his career at, at, as the CEO of, of Honeywell. So he was already thinking about the long term and what that meant 10, you know, 20, 30 years after, you know, from, from that point forward. And that's a different mentality than what we hear from a lot of CEOs out there. You know, most of them are not thinking with the stewardship mentality. Most of them are trying to maximize the profits and uh, maximize the share price, which on paper sounds like a great thing. But as an investor who wants to own a company for 10 plus years, you're, you're aware that you're probably going to own the company through multiple managerial cycles. The average tenure of a CEO in the United States is, I think, four or five years. So we don't really want to own company or companies where the CEO is going to turn over that quickly. But even with a CEO, if they have 10, 15 years, that puts them in the upper echelon of, of tenure. And so if you're going to own want to own a company for a long term, you're going to have to go through different managerial cycles. And so you really want to have a 
CEO who is setting the company up, set, setting the company up for long-term success, not just maximizing short-term profits and then dealing with the collateral damage on the opposite side, you know, once they retire. And that does happen quite a bit in the book profiles GE, for example. They talk about how when Jack Welch left, everything seemed to fall apart. And to me, that's that's not a good look for for Jack Welch. You know, that that he's constantly frequently held up as one of the best CEOs of all time. I have no doubt that he was an excellent CEO, but from a stewardship approach, it's very disconcerting um, when, when you hear about you know, what happened to GE after he left. Um, certainly, Jeff Immel, um, as, a comp as the book discusses, played a role in that. Uh, but it seems like the, the corporate culture at GE at the time was, was not great. And that's not a good look for someone who's stewarding the business. As compared to Dave Code at Honeywell, the company has gone on to do very well since he retired. And so I think that speaks very highly of of his approach. And um, one of the other quotes that he's talked about um, with Dave Cote in Honeywell was, you know, he wanted uh, the the sort of standard to be that other companies want to poach their leadership uh, from Honeywell because they're the best leaders, but the, the leaders want to stay at Honeywell because it's even better than if they had gone somewhere else. And so those are sort of quotes. If you hear something like that from one of the companies that you're researching, that's just a gold mark right there. That's that's a that's a fantastic thing to hear, and you should get excited about that when you hear it. And if we're staying with uh, Honeywell there for a little moment, I mean, one thing that uh, Dave Cody did was uh, that he was paying top performers not just for the job they were doing today, but also for the job that they will be offered tomorrow. I think that was quite striking as well. What are your thoughts on on that? Yeah, that's certainly something that is difficult. I, I imagine to to justify <laughs> in, in in a boardroom or in 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 with the with the with the budgeting team that you have is saying, you know, if you have a guy who uh, who's making a hundred thousand dollars in his role, and you're saying, well, I want to pay him for the next roll up and pay him another thirty thousand dollars a year, just because that's that's a hard thing to justify, I'm sure, uh, when it comes to budgeting. But that's one of those intangibles that is very hard to replicate. So Costco, very similarly. Um, had was was frequently blamed by analysts for overpaying their their work staff and paying their uh, their benefits, you know, giving way too good healthcare. Um, if you look at some of the sell side notes from the two thousands, that was the constant concern was that Costco was overpaying, and similar to Honeywell. And what that did though is it created this longer term value creation because you have less turnover, which takes cost out of HR, takes cost out of having to constantly uh, put new people into the system, which are real costs. It's just very much harder to, 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 to quantify. And so I think that's probably the shared perspective that, that Jim Senegal from Costco and Dave Cote from Honeywell had was, we want to pay people as if they're going to stay here for the rest of their career. And we don't want them to leave because they got another $5,000, $10,000. For, for their position so somewhere else so that just makes a ton of sense um, when thinking long term but i can see why analysts and outside uh analysts and, and investors might be frustrated with that saying hey we could get a couple more points of margin if you just paid everybody what they were worth but longer term it creates this this virtuous um uh, benefit that i think is is overlooked Roper and uh, Danaher are two other success stories described in the book. And uh, both of these and, and also other examples that we have described 
um, explain the need to have strong systems in place and, and a laser focus on capital allocation and cash flows. So if, if we start with Danaher, can you talk about Danaher business system and what made it successful? Yeah, Danaher business system uh, was really a, a fantastic uh, application of lean systems that they, that they incorporated from uh, a lot of the Japanese manufacturers like, like Toyota. And they brought it to the U.S. and really started applying it across all of their acquisitions and across all the businesses that, that they had acquired, the Rails Brothers. And I think that just that just drove home the the, the value um, of this this lean mentality. And um, it's replicable. It's it can be systematically uh, applied. And it's Danaher business system has, has become the gold standard. I think pretty much every other operating system. Um, across industrial companies now um, tries to mimic the Danaher business system. And that's one of the things I think is a challenge now is that pretty much every industrial company has their own system. So then it becomes, okay, how do you tell which ones are are, are actually working and which ones are, are not working? And but, but the Danaher system is interesting because um, it allows them to, uh, to, to, to almost pivot when they don't see... Um, the, the value in the system anymore. So you know, they, the, the old Danaher is now Fortive, which is a separate company. And Danaher now is much more tied to, to healthcare. Um, so it, it's, that's a very rare type of business that is able to, you know, let go of these legacy systems when they don't think that that's where shareholders want to have value anymore or see value anymore. Um, or at least, you know, it's taking taking a different approach. I mean, most companies would hang on to those legacy assets uh, because you know those are those are people that you know. You know, those are people that have been part of your business for a very long time, and it's very difficult behaviorally to to do that. And so, I think um, the Danaher approach is is just is unique. I don't think that most companies could replicate it um, in that way. But you know, it's just a, a fantastic process, a fantastic system. Um, that I think everybody should should learn about. And this book does a great job explaining it. And just go into a bit of a detail look into that. I mean, it's it could be like things like output per employee and I mean, that that the company delivers on time and, and, and so on. I mean, the, a, lot of, a lot of different metrics, of course. And for investors, I'm just curious to know, as you said, I mean, many of industrials have these systems now, but for investors, how do you really understand and get the information on on that because it's not it's not all that really describes these metrics in the in the re, in the reports and so on. So how do you go about measuring? I mean the the progress in terms of that. Yeah, that's a good question. It's it's challenging. You know, I think that you have to really understand how the system uh, plugs into the moat. That's how I would approach it. Is Thinking about okay, how does the system make the moat stronger? Um, I think I'd have the same approach with culture. It's companies talk about oh, I've got we've got great corporate culture, that's great, but how does it impact the moat ultimately? You know, there was um, there's a company based in Wales called Admiral Group, which is an insurance company that I've owned personally for over ten years, and I remember going out to Cardiff and meeting them, and one of their core advantages is this super low expense ratio. They have the costs down to as low as they can possibly go. And just, I I got to see it firsthand. They were not 
ornate. There was nothing ornate about it. Everything was very basic. And when they opened up a U.S. office in Richmond, Virginia, this was in probably 2009, to teach the U.S. Uh, people who worked there uh, the, the culture, they one of the things that they did was they had a printer put outside of the CEO's desk in Richmond. And if you wanted to print something on paper, you had to go in front of the CEO's desk and do a push-up for every piece of paper that you, you wanted to do. And so I think that to me is an example of how the culture can translate into supporting the moat. And so thinking about the systems the same way, I mean, pretty much all the systems talk about, okay, we're going to, we're going to um, focus on companies that have on an acquisition perspective, um, looking at uh, a, a widespread between gross profit margin and operating margin, because if we can acquire those companies, we can, we can take out a lot of the operating expenses and create a lot of value for, for our shareholders. And so I think that it's, it's the, it's the replication and the track record. So if you are not seeing results from, from that approach, I think you start have to ask questions. Okay. Why are returns on invested capital declining in this, you know, are you overpaying what's happening with your, your acquisition process? Uh, why aren't you able to take more costs out? What's, what's going on? Why? aren't, aren't things working the way that you expected. So I think, um, it, and that takes time that takes time and monitoring. So if a company came out and operate and launched a new system today, it's probably going to be a couple of years before we can really get a sense of whether or not the system's working. And so that's where I think you need to put your qualitative assessment hat on and look at the culture and work with management and try to understand, um, if they're if they're serious people, <laughs> you know, like if this is just if this is just just a way to um, uh, satiate Wall Street or the market, that's not what you want. Obviously, there should be some sort of intrinsic motivation beyond just getting this done. There should be something about you know creating shareholder value, uh, you know, creating great businesses, enjoying the the prosperity that it brings. You know, those are all part of the intrinsic motivation. So then you can look at things like incentives. Okay. Are they, is management, um, are the incentives aligned with what the system is trying to create? And if they're, you know, for example, if they're looking at revenue growth and the system's supposed to create you know, operating profits, well, it, you know, that's you know, maybe a mismatch. Um, and you have to think about, okay, well, why are you incentivizing management on revenue when you're trying to drive OPEX reductions. So these are all things that I think you, you should be thinking about, but um, it, that's, that's uh, the first time I've thought about that question. So it's a, uh, it, it's a, hopefully that answer was uh, probably circuitous, but you know, got to what you were looking for. And speaking about the Danaher business system, uh, one thing that I took away from the book was speaking about uh, growth and uh, that the optimal growth is, is about four to 6% on, on top line and uh, not less and not so much more either, uh, which is quite uncommon. I mean, we often look for disruptive high growth companies, uh, especially in the last couple of years, people have been desperate for that. So what are your thoughts on, on that and, and why is that? Yeah, I thought that was a great point that the authors made in the book and they're right. It's, you know, it's, um, it's a machine. And, you know, if you are overfeeding the machine, it's going to burn out. And if you're underfeeding it, you have poor utilization, right? And so I, that's how I would think about it. I've often used the, um, the illustration for returns on invested capital where you, it's like a machine and you have invested capital, let's say it's $100 and you put it in the machine. And if it 
gives you 20% returns on invested capital. You get your hundred dollars back another 20, uh, but that comes at a cost, right? So you have to pay like, we'll say 8% for the cost of using that, that machine. And so if you're, if you're overfeeding it, like that produces a lot, but it could also produce uh, declining returns, um, over time, you know, so I think, uh, the machine has to be, um, able to take all the, all the, uh, the capital that's coming at it. Otherwise you're going to have incrementally poor returns on invested capital, which is not what you want. And so, um, the other thing is if, if it's growing that fast, if the, if the input's coming in so much, uh, more than it can take, that means you have to scale up your employee count and scale up your investments. And that also leads to, uh, declining on returns and invested capital. So. I think that's interesting because you're right. We do sort of lionize these high growth companies. And that's, I would say, more reflective of an intangible asset business that can handle it. So when you have a capital light business, you can handle more of that. But when you have a capital intensive business like these manufacturing companies, you can't handle that growth. It's much, much harder to, to do it. And so that also leads to these companies flying under the radar which is one of the things I like to look for at flyover stocks in my newsletter is trying to find these companies that are growing, just not double digits and not attracting a lot of attention. Um, but is, if that's a durable growth rate, I mean, if you're producing, if you're growing 6% a year, you're growing faster than the economy. And over time that compounds that 6% year after year after year compounds. And so that's, that's a very attractive type of business that will fly under the radar and probably makes for a very, attractive investment, depending on what's happening at various points in the cycle. And one uh, steady compounder is uh, Roper, which is a company depicted in one of the chapters here. And this company really resembles some of the successful serial acquiries that we have here in Sweden with a repeatable business model and using these strong growing cash flows to buy more and more companies. Uh, so, I mean, and also Danaher is an example of one with a similar model so but this has also been developing a lot over time and that's something you spoke about in the beginning how this evolves so maybe you can say a bit more about roper and how this happened over time that they developed yeah roper developed uh, brian jellison uh, developed this approach called cri uh, cash return on investment which is very similar to um, the, the definition that i use of of return on invested capital, which is no pat over invested capital. Um, he makes a couple of different adjustments in there to make it more sort of cash on cash sort of returns. And it, he really, I mean, Roper, I, we used to follow them at a previous firm and I believe their, their, their core office doesn't have that many employees and they're just kind of acquiring companies and looking for opportunities. And it's, they've done a remarkable job of you know, making that transition to, from, um, towards, uh, more capital light type of businesses. And to that extent, it sort of mimics what's, um, uh, constellation software in Canada, just, you know, they're acquiring these, these cash flow businesses and discounting those cash flows back to the future that creates the value. And so I think that's what Roper secret sauce was, was they just focused on the right areas of the market created a lot of value and they deserve all the credit. Brian Jellison created a great business. Uh, strong price discipline as well in the acquisitions. Yes. Yeah. They have very strong price discipline and they, um, it, that, that's what it's all about. It's all about being able to replicate the process and not so much feeling the pressure to acquire just to acquire. 
you know, there by taking a long-term approach, by waiting for the right opportunities, similar to us as, as public market investors, it's, it's all about thinking about value, right? We're not trying to collect a bunch of great businesses. I mean, anybody can go out and just buy a bunch of great businesses, but that's collecting, that's not investing. And I think that's what the mark of a great acquirer is as well, is they're looking for value. I mean, they may have wanted to buy this higher quality company to, you know, up that for more money, but they just couldn't justify the price at that time. But as we know in public markets too, over certain points of the cycle, those opportunities become more present. So it's all about having the, the financial strength to make those acquisitions and the discipline uh, when the opportunities come up. And on acquisitions, I, I found it so interesting in the Danaher chapter that the CFO, Dan Comas, always found that sellers hadn't told the whole truth in the diligence phase and that he made a point in asking, now that the deal is closed, please tell us everything you failed to tell us during diligence. And I, I just thought that really resembles the Berkshire formula of asking for the bad news first. Um, apart from that example, what did we learn about risk management in the book? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, I, I I also liked that approach uh, that the Danaher asking afterwards because I do I do think it uh, talks about um, understanding that making an acquisition is sort of a dance, right? It, it, both parties know that that they're not telling they, they they have cards up their sleeve or whatever it might be, but it's it's saying okay, what's done? Let's let's put that behavior behind us and let's just let's let's figure out what, what's really going on. It's like buying a house, right? And that's something I'd, I'd love to do next time I buy a house. Hopefully I don't have to buy a house anytime soon. But just asking the seller after the deal signed, okay, what do I need to know? Like, where's the water coming in the basement? You know, those type of things that the inspector might have missed. I mean, those are, you know, that is that is risk management too, because, you know, I'd much rather know that upfront and deal with it than be surprised. And as we know, what that's what real risk is, is, the things that we hadn't fully thought about. And to the extent that you can know those things, that reduces your risk. And so I, I think just that that question alone is, is a great risk mitigating type of question to ask. Um, and I think that's that, that's really what it's all about is in, in the systems as well as trying to figure out what could go wrong at any point. You know, if you, I haven't done a lot of, it's been a long time since I did any sort of Six Sigma or lean uh, processes that work. We did it back at Vanguard, but I remember that process and you know it's very, very formulaic and thinking about all the things that could go wrong. And especially when you're dealing with manufacturing, you know, just one piece breaking creates a, a ripple effect across the whole system. And so um, I think that's also what the systems do is try to identify as many possible um, risk um, events as, as they can. Uh, before they actually start producing. I think it also makes the point. I mean, we, we sit there as investors and, and analysts, and we often we often don't really see the details happening in a company. I think it was an example also from, from Danaher that even though they have these great business systems, things, things uh, I mean, happens all the time. They have challenges every day. I mean, things, things uh, break down and, and, and so on. It's just about handling all those things in a good way. And I just think uh, that, I mean, it's something that investors need to think about, that it's not this, uh, I mean, object that is just static and, and, and you get the numbers every quarter and, and so on, you look at them. I mean, it's it's good to get that perspective 
that really things i mean think things a lot of things happen happens in a company and it's about really the the people in the company to handle all the problems in a good way that's that's sort of a key thing yeah i think that's right i think that's why it's so helpful to the extent that you can get to know the character of the people in the business it's so much easier to invest when you can go to bed at night knowing that the people who are running the business the people who are on the front line are thinking about ways that they can improve the business and create value you know i i've invested in the past some of my mistakes have been investing in in ceos and leadership teams where there were warning signs of of poor character and and just kind of toxic in, in internal environment and that's something I, I really want to avoid going forward is when I, I just wrote a piece for flyover stocks about this talking about there's another book you should probably profile at some point called um seven seven signs of ethical collapse uh by marianne jennings and it's a great book talking about how the it was written in 2006 after the um, Enron and WorldCom and some of those uh, failures of, of the early 2000s. And she she really nails a couple of the points um, that there were many common threads that, that showed up across these corrupt companies. And it, it's important to, to be aware of it, not because you think that they're going to be the next Enron, but it could also lead to terrible decision making. Um, such as making a bad acquisition, trying to make a transformative acquisition or shuffling segments to hide things that are going on. And that all leads to moat erosion, which leads to re uh, declining returns on invested capital, which leads to lower multiples and a poor stock price. So I think these are all important things is you know, trying to understand the, the management team's character, how they, how they think about stewardship. Um, is it just are they just speaking about it or are they really living it? And, and to the extent that you can do that and, and dig into um, the company, that's great. And one of the things people always ask, you know, as an individual investor, how can I begin to, to do this? And honestly, now is the best time than, than ever before for, for learning about these things. I mean, podcasts, just if you go on Spotify or go on Apple Podcasts or, or YouTube, type in the CEO, type in the CFO, type in you know, different people's names in the executive team, odds are at least one of them has had an interview. Um, look at local business journals. Uh, there's so many ways that you can find these um, under the radar uh, sources of information uh, about the, the character of the team. Um, one of the companies I just profiled for Flyover Stocks was Grocery Outlet. And there, I found there's a whole <laughs> a whole series of, 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 it's a podcast with 20 episodes or so with um, independent owners of the grocery stores in the grocery outlet chain. And they interviewed two of the managers, two, two of the management team uh, members um, in different episodes. And so it's being able to hear both on the ground and in the, in the executive suite uh, perspectives was tremendously valuable to me for someone who had never researched a company before. I have not spoken with investor relations. I do not know management team personally, but I can, I can pick up from these conversations that you know, there's something, something positive happening there. It's not, um, uh, it's, it's not a, a sort of corrupt environment or it doesn't seem to be, or, you know, so that, that risk is to me quite low and that's, just from doing some searching on Spotify and local business journals, it wasn't anything sort of um, you know going and you know doing like you know, 
channel checks or anything like that. It was just going and, and listening and um, going for a walk and hearing what management had to say. So there's a lot of things you can do today to to begin to, to pick up on that. But I think it's just, you have to, over time, you start to learn patterns, uh, I think, which can be helpful and sometimes it can't be, but I'd say it's generally helpful to have the sort of uh, patterns that you, you want to see, some, some virtuous signals. Um, you can never know for sure, but it, it definitely helps to have those patterns in place. And uh, you start to figure out which management teams are doing and saying the right things and which ones are not. I think this is a great point. And uh, one of the examples from, from the book that comes to mind, I mean, speaking about, about character is uh, the insane perks that uh, Immelt at uh, GE had. I mean, he, for example, uh, and the, the authors of the book, they really have close connections to these uh, great leaders. I mean, they have met them many times and also other members of their teams. And uh, when he interviewed him for at, at some point, then he got to know that uh, the, the, the CEO had a team who was flying down his uh, fitness equipment and sets it up in the hotel room. I mean, that that really gives you the chills. Yeah, there's there's signs like that that I think you should be on the lookout for. One of the companies, um, I won't say which one, but that we covered at Morningstar, not me personally, but, but someone else, and they went to, to visit the company and there was a separate elevator for the executive team. You know, they didn't, they weren't shoulder to shoulder with the people who were coming to do work. And that to me was just, you know, that's, that's a sign. It's, it's not a good business. I'll leave it at that. But, you know, I think that's a, that's a very good sign of something that you, you want to look out for is, you know, how, how does management work with the frontline employees? You know, or do they consider themselves separate entities or do they consider themselves, you know, shoulder to shoulder, you know, servant leaders? I think that's, that's a really key thing. You know, when I worked at, at Morningstar, Joe Mansueto, who was the the founder of, of Morningstar, and he's a tremendous entrepreneur, his desk was just like everybody else's. There was no corner office with glass and closed windows. He sat in a open cubicle system like the rest of us did. And to me, that really spoke to his accessibility and his his eagerness to hear from just employees getting a cup of water, you know, at, at the station. You know, this that's the type of leadership that you want to see in, in the companies. Um, but those are things that just take time to, to, to learn and, and to, um, and over time you get to learn some of these things from uh, speaking with other investors and other employees and doing expert interviews or whatever it might be. And if you can't, I mean, everyone can't visit the, the headquarters, but, uh, the AGM is open. And if, if it's not too far from you or to travel, uh, I definitely suggest everyone to go. I mean, we always try to to visit the ones that we are following the companies and where they are close, reasonably close, because that's there, there you can talk to other people than just the CEO. You can talk to M&A managers and so on. So that's another interesting area to talk to. Yeah, investor days are, are great if you can get an invite as well. You know, certainly as a individual investor, you, you're more likely to get in on a smaller cap uh, than you would a larger cap because they have limited space or whatever it might be. But, you know, there's there's a lot of ways that you can do it. And AGM, I believe, is open, should be open to everybody. Um, what if you have 10 shares or 10,000? So that's another way to do it. But um, yeah, that, I think to the extent that you can get to meet different people in the organization, not just the CEO, not just the CFO, that really helps as well. Because, the, you know, the CEO, we all know that you, they, they, they get to that position by being great advertisers and marketers of the business. And so, you know, when you hear them on 
conference calls and such, you know, they're, they're polished. They're the most polished people at the company. And so you have to always keep that in mind when you're talking with a CEO um, that these guys are great marketers and you have to be aware of that. I mean, I think a lot of them are genuine, but I think that you also have to keep in the back of your mind that this, that they are, they are painting a picture for you. Right. And I think we, we discussed this before. I mean, one, one thing of investing is of course, finding these red flags that, that uh, makes you avoid a company. But I mean, being an investor such as you focusing on these high quality companies, it's more often about, I mean, small problems that compound um, than these big red flags. And those small problems, I mean, small detriments down more or less is, is really hard for us as humans to, to grasp in the right way. I mean, how do you think about that in your investing? Uh, I mean, in, in your investing process to find these smaller problems that that gets worse and worse i mean how do you incorporate that into maybe taking a decision that i mean this company is not as high quality anymore i should sell it yeah i think it's position sizing is a great tool that i don't believe is is utilized as well as it should be by most investors including myself you know you can own a business that you like but as there's yellow flags you can scale it back you know, because that, that's basically what we're doing. And I hate using the analogy of gambling with investing because they're not the same thing, but it's all about playing. If Let's say you have 100 chips um, to play on 20 different hands of poker. You know, here's how, like, how would you allocate them? Well, you would put the most behind the most you know, likely positive outcome and the biggest payoff. And so over time, as, as the odds of that success in your mind change, you can change the bets. You know, it's, it's a never ending bet cycle, right? You can always move hands, move your chips, different hands that you think are, are best positioned to, to create a value longer term. And so if yellow flags begin to present themselves, if those little things start to manifest and you're not quite sure, is, is this temporary or is it permanent? You can, you can take some off the table. And, um, that's, that's certainly a reasonable thing to do. And, you know, whether that's stocks become overvalued or you start to see new competitive threats, or you start to see some of these yellow flags, you know, you can you can resize your bets. Um, you know, Buffett talks a lot about um, how a, a moat is something that's created every single day. It can either get wider or narrower every day. And as public market investors, we can't see that every day. We're not in the company, and even people who are on the boards of directors at these companies don't always see that on a day to day basis. They might catch it after a quarter, and so. As investors, as outside investors, you know, we're lucky if we can pick up on things every six to 12 months, um, something that might be of concern to us. And so one of the tools that are at our disposal is um, position sizing. So again, like if you continue to like the company, but you have concerns, you can, you can size up, up and down that bet um, o- over time. And I think this uh, question is quite interesting. I mean, you've followed so many companies, both from your Morningstar career and also as an investor. I mean, if you could add one chapter to the book, which company would it be about and why? Yeah, I think the guys did a great, the authors did a great job of covering the most important industrials. I would say that one company that should be studied and it's probably more applicable to today's tech companies because it's more intangible asset based is Procter and Gamble because that Procter and Gamble has been a, a titan for generations it seems and it continues to be one of the largest companies in the United States 
and you know going back to its history um as you know, being in, in in cincinnati on the canals and being able to sell its wares coast to coast and to different countries you know it's it has this long track record of creating tremendous value and uh one of its core differentiators is that it's really stuck by understanding right, the customer obsession and you know there have been dark periods in procter and gamble's history especially over the past 50 years um there have been challenges there have been activist challenges but they've really focused on uh, innovating and creating products that really make lives people's lives easier and ultimately that's that's why they remain relevant you know think about tide tide pods and, and swiffers and different things that make live people's lives just a little bit easier and they've got tremendous customer research um, it's all about innovation and focusing on brands you know that's something that people have at various investors have questioned whether or not brands can be a moat but i really, I really think that they are um you know certainly we've seen that over years and uh, uh, morgan Housel in his new book has a great um story to start his book about how there was a businessman traveling with Warren Buffett around Omaha in 2009, right in the thick of the financial crisis and the aftermath. And he asks, um, you know, he says to Warren Buffett, why, you know, how are we going to get out of this? You know, everything looks so, so bad right now. And Warren Buffett turned to him and said, um, do you know what the best selling candy bar was? And I think it was like 1928 or something. He said, Snickers, guess what the best selling candy bar was last year. Snickers. So, you know, there's, 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 there's value in these, in these brands. And I think there's, it, it's certainly um, hard to quantify what is behind that boat. And I think that's why brands are so often questioned as moat sources that maybe they're disguising as something else like distribution benefits or something like that. But I do think there are certainly search cost advantages related to it. You know, if I'm going to the candy store and I've never heard of half of them, but I see Snickers, I know what Snickers is going to be. And it's, it's, it's a satisfying um, decision-making process. You know, that's the familiarity. Like I know exactly the dosage of chocolate and the, the, the taste. I know exactly what I'm going to get. Um, and that's why Starbucks and you know, Chipotle and all these different brands uh, resonate so well with customers over time. And, and Procter & Gamble has certainly picked up on that. You know, there's some of their brands have been around for, for generations. And, you know, if you're, um, someone who you know, creates a new household and you never had to buy laundry detergent before, like you're not going to go comparing laundry detergents and you're going to go with what your mom and dad used or something you're familiar with. And usually that's that. And that's, that's just how these brands continue over time. And, um, you know, I've been a Nintendo investor for a couple of years and just thinking about, um, the nostalgia effect related to the Nintendo brands and how that kind of creates a, a multi-generational benefit for the company these are really important assets. And so uh, Procter & Gamble has certainly gotten that right. You know, they've also similar to the industrial companies, they've reduced um, a lot of organizational bureaucracy. They've got, they undergo changes every couple of years through their, to their structure. And that seems to, to help with the creative process and, and create uh, value and reduce bureaucracy in the business. So it's been an incredible testament to, to the business um, to, to survive and thrive despite having seen seemingly persistently uh, high expectations from the market. And the name of Morgan House's new book is Same as Ever. Yeah, it's a great read. I've, I'm like halfway through. Morgan's a great writer, of course. And so it's a pretty quick read. Definitely. And uh, speaking about something that is new is, is your new endeavor, Flyover Stocks, the newsletter. Please uh, tell us a bit more about 
what you're doing? Yeah, so with flyover stocks, um, we're looking for companies with economic moats that are led by thoughtful stewards of shareholder capital and are ideally trading for an attractive price. And when I was at Morningstar, I did a series of articles called Seeking Small Cap Moats. And these were monthly picks. They weren't picks. They were more like profiles of, um, of different companies that I thought had economic moats by the Morningstar definition, but we didn't actively cover at Morningstar. And having been able to look back on those over 10 years now, um, start to see that there are some pretty attractive businesses that, that were profiled, uh, Badger Meter, Windmark, Exponent. These were all well over 400% returns over the 10-year period. And I thought, well, maybe there's something to continue to, to, to look at there. Um, trying to find these companies that may not resonate um, or jump off the page at an investor who's never heard of the company before. You know, trying to find, like, like for example, Badger Meter, sounds like a, a ridiculous name, right? And so that was a, that they do water metering and it's a very bland business. It's got a kind of funny name and, you know, they're based in the Midwest. People aren't going to be making a lot of trips from New York to come out and take a look around. And I think that's just, it flies under the radar and becomes a, a great business. And um, it, it, it's, uh, those are, those are the sort of businesses that I'm attracted to or companies with you know, funny names and, you know, are in, in strange places um, that are well off the beaten path. You know, Jack Henry and Associates is one of the best performing stocks over the past 25, 30 years. And they do banking software for small banks and credit unions. And they're based in Monette, Missouri, which is population 10,000. And those are just really fascinating businesses to me that I think um, deserve profiles and to uh, be shared with other investors. And that's really what I'm looking for. Um, and then, so I do a monthly profile of a company and I also write commentaries about investing in the, in, in the, in the, in between the company profiles. And is the service free or, or how have you set that up? Sure. So the service is both free and paid. So most of the commentaries are, so these are just kind of evergreen investing lessons and the company profiles have been moved, moved to paid. Uh, but if you're a free subscriber, you still get um, the business description. And but I leave the the moat management, uh, risk and opportunities, and valuation analysis for the the paid subscribers. And so the reports are typically three thousand to four thousand words. And how are you structuring your days now? A lot of writing and researching. Yeah, a lot of writing and researching. Um, and you know, just it, it's it's been great um, to sort of have the the freedom to pursue. The different companies that I wouldn't have been able to look at in previous roles, just because of the investment mandates and and the universe that we were we were focused on. So, having just carte blanche and being able to to look wherever I find interesting has been very refreshing and, and energizing um, to be as an investor. What would you say is the biggest difference between like the larger names that you looked at that Ensemble, for example, with the smaller names that you look at now? Well, I think it's the the key difference is the I would say moat size, so or moat width, if you will. You know, a lot of the large cap companies that we looked at in my previous job, you know, they were these dominant companies in their spaces, and most small companies, small and mid cap size companies, you know, if they have a moat, that's great, uh, but it's usually pretty narrow, and you can always come up with an alternative explanation as to to why 
it, it won't work or maybe why a larger company could come after it. And so I like to find these companies that are in the kind of the SMID cap space that um, have some sort of barrier to entry that make it difficult for smaller upstart competitors to compete with them on scale and but aren't these huge opportunities that will attract uh, investment dollars from the large cap companies. So those are really nice spaces to be in. And one of the companies that I profiled, um, which is free, there's two free reports that are full, uh, full reports on my site. Called, um, they're about um, Worthington Industries and Howden's Joinery in the UK. Um, and Worthington is a is going to be spun. There's a there's a spinoff happening uh, where the steel part of the business is being spun off, and they're keeping their, uh, their some of their building materials, J, building products, JVs, and their um, uh, so their the pressurized cylinders uh, for for consumers. And you know, those those are businesses where they're very profitable, um, but it's not they're not jumping off the page at you as you know, 80% returns on invested capital and, and growing 20% a year, and which would attract certainly investment from, from larger companies. Uh, but they're, they, they find these niches that um, are flying under the radar and but are still very profitable and should continue to create great shareholder value, in my opinion. And how is the portfolio structured? The Flyover Stocks does not have a portfolio per se. It's just sort of profiling these companies. But you know, my, my personal portfolio is, is about 20 companies and you know, I keep an eye on them pretty regularly. And I, I think that's a that's pretty um, good bit of diversification to have. I think the, the data show that if you have fewer, you have a better chance of outperforming. Um, but if you have more, you have less chance of outperforming. But there's sort of a trade-off where if you outperform with let's say five to 10 stocks, that's great, but you can also lose a lot too. Um, and if you have too many, you don't have any chance of outperforming. So you might as well index. And so um, I, I try to find this sort of sweet spot, which I think is about 15 to 20 companies where you still have some benefits of active management, but you also have diversification where you know, you're unlikely to, to really underperform for a very long time. And are those mostly in the US? Mostly U.S. I do have a few international companies. I mentioned uh, Admiral Group before. Um, I also own um, uh, Games Workshop uh, in the U.K. And I also own um, some shares of Howden's Joinery, uh, which I bought a couple of weeks after I profiled them on uh, Flyover Stocks. And this being a, a book podcast, uh, besides Lessons from the Titans, do you have one or, or two other books that you think more investors should should be reading? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I just shared my bookshelf uh, on, on 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 Twitter. Um, I have a link to it on my personal website, and so if you want a full list of my you know, bookshelf and some of my favorites, uh, those are there. I think that pretty much every investor should read uh, "Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits" by Philip Fisher. I think his work, in particular, speaks more to today's type of investing than some others from that era, which were more tangible asset focused. I mean, we've certainly shifted into a more intangible asset economy, globally speaking. And you know, certainly in the US, a lot of the leading companies are more intangible based. And Philip Fisher was wrote the book 70 years ago. I mean, it's 60 years ago. It's still very, very relevant to today. And so I think everybody should, should read that book. Um, Another one uh, I, I would recommend that most people haven't looked at is uh, Joel Tillinghast's um, A Big Money Thinks Small. And he was a, a legendary uh, fidelity 
investor um, who it, did the uh, Fidelity low price stock fund, I believe, for for well over a decade, had great performance. There's a forward by Peter Lynch um, along the same lines. Uh, there's a book, um, I think it's called Investing Against the Tide by Anthony Bolton um, in the UK, who was a legendary investor who most people do not know about, and he, in the US at least. And uh, he was also from Fidelity, and Peter Lynch also wrote a forward for that one. So uh, these are all, all great. Those are all, all sort of foundational reads, in my opinion, that, that people should have um, on their bookshelf. We'll put those in the show notes. And, uh, and will there be a book, uh, another book written by you? You have written one book. Yeah, I wrote uh, Keeping Your Dividend Edge in 2016. That came from, that was inspired by my time at uh, Motley Fool, where I focused on dividend investing. I had um, a lot of readers from that newsletter um, who continued to reach out asking for my thoughts on dividend investing. And so I wanted to kind of write a capstone that to my in my dividend investing approach and how I think about dividends. Um, and that, that book serves that purpose. So it covers all the bases from how to find dividends to be to dividend paying stocks, to um, avoiding risks, to uh, portfolio management of a dividend focused portfolio. Um, you know, I'd love to write another book. It just really comes down to um, finding the, the topic that I think would resonate with a lot of folks and um, trying to find a, a, you know, a publisher who would be willing to do it. You know, I, the, my first book was was self-published and that's something that I am with hindsight, I wish I had gone a different route, but it was a good lesson uh, regardless that you know, writing a book and publishing a book and editing a book is, is really hard work. And um, you really need to find um, a great publisher to, to team with. And um, you know, certainly if the opportunity came up and I had a, something I wanted to write about, would love to. Todd Penning, thank you so much for coming on Investing by the Books podcast and sharing your thoughts on how we can improve as investors. Do you have something more you want to add before we finish up here? No, I you know, thanks thanks so much for having me. I think that you know the the key thing I would leave folks with from Remember the Titans is um, really look at that Dave Coates story. I think that's something that you should really take to heart and uh, really try to find those great stewards of, of the business and um, that that will greatly reduce your risk, I think, as an investor over the long term and um, you know focus on those types of businesses. Great. And lastly, where can our audience? I mean, we know that we can follow you on on flyover stocks, but do you have any? Are you active on Twitter or other sources? <laughs> sure, you can find me on Twitter or on Threads at Todd Wenning. It's just my name, um, and I, I my messages are open, so you're always welcome to send me a note. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. Follow us on Twitter at ib underscore red eye and email us at ib.podcast at redeye.se. To improve, we'd love to hear your feedback, so please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.